The Spin-Off Podcast Network. We believe where you live shouldn't decide your destiny and that any place can be a place of learning. So much of modern life has a handy home delivery option. Why not your education? Maybe you'll start your degree in the same space you share with your whānau or from that corner of the spare room that catches the most sun. Start your new what at the place where we're can be anywhere, online or on campus. Massey, New Zealand's leading online university. Apply now at massey.ac.nz. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora koutou, I'm Stacey Morrison. No mai, haere mai, welcome to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, a thought-provoking series brought to you by Massey University and the spin-off. For the first episode of our second season, I'm joined by Dr Julia Debress from Massey University and Te Ahiwi Hongi from Gender Minorities Aotearoa for a kōrero about inclusivity in language. We'll be looking especially at the ways in which our languaging is changing and evolving around things like gender and sexuality and how better considering or incorporating te reo and mātauranga Māori can help us make further progress in these areas. Julia is a sociolinguist and a senior lecturer in linguistics at Massey's School of Humanities, Media and Creative Communication. She's also on the board of the Inside Out Youth Charity and currently works in the area of language and gender diversity, particularly in our rainbow communities. Te Ahi is a diversity and inclusion specialist, a human rights advocate and a health promoter and has worked as the national coordinator of Gender Minorities Aotearoa since 2014. They work extensively with sexuality, gender and sex characteristic diverse communities as well as with sex workers and other minority groups. Tēnā kōrua. Thank you both for joining us. Kia Tēnā koe. When we say inclusive language, can you both give me an explanation of what that means and what it sounds like, Julia. I think for me, inclusive language is about taking into account the full audience that you have access to when you're talking. Because so often um, the ways that we use language are built on dominant social norms that really take into account dominant groups. Um, And using inclusive language is explicitly recognising that there is so much more diversity within that group and making sure that we explicitly signal that via the ways that we use language as a form of showing respect to the diversity of the people that we're speaking to. And Tahi, why is this important? I suppose it's important because groups that are less visible or um, or have less uh, are listened to less in society have less control over their narratives the way that stigma and discrimination are formulated or like how they come about I think rest a lot on language how we talk about people how we communicate ideas about people and the things that we consciously and unconsciously communicate when we're when we're using language so I think that using language that uh, respects and you know enhances the mana and upholds you know all of the all of the people it's really important for changing the ways that we think about different groups of people. Because how can it feel for someone to be called a name or a reference to their gender that they don't identify with? What does that feel like? I think it signals that a person doesn't respect them and that can be a you know, that can be on a really unconscious level. Most people aren't intentionally trying to disrespect someone when they 
um, use the wrong name or the wrong pronouns or um, say things about them um, that are just a bit off. Uh, but I think it shows a lack of understanding. So like part of learning to use the right language is learning how to think about the issues or the, or the people that you're talking about. Yeah, so I think it feels pretty bad um, when when people yeah have get the wrong pronouns or get the wrong words about them. And like on the flip side of that, I think it's really empowering and feels really good. You know, it makes people feel really understood when the ways that people are talking about them fit with who they are. Kilda, so Julia, in terms of common use language in Aotearoa, where would you say we're at in using language that reflects and includes diverse identities? Well, obviously, there's a lot of different diverse identities to consider there. And I think that there are different kinds of struggles and challenges among all of these groups. We can think about um, racial minorities, um, disability minorities, neurodiversity and so on. There's just, you know, so many minority groups that make up the part of our of our country in Aotearoa. When it comes to um, sexuality and gender, I personally am finding it a really exciting time right now. The level and speed of change that is happening in terms of how we talk about about gender in particular in the last um, last few years even is quite amazing to watch as a linguist. So it's an area um, where I feel quite a lot of hope at the moment when it comes to gender diversity. There's so many areas of experience for gender diverse people where things are still extremely difficult in terms of inclusion or discrimination in family, community, health uh, settings um, in schools for instance and we keep seeing that in research that's coming out last week with Youth 19, for instance, coming out and seeing the the levels, high levels of bullying that young people experience in schools and so on. So there is, you know, uh, in terms of people's experiences, it's still really challenging in New Zealand. But I feel that um, language is one area where change is occurring at such a fast rate. And given that language has such power, um, that I think it can be a real vehicle using inclusive language for moving things along in a more positive direction. So I'm quite excited about it personally. Dahi, <laughs> how has that felt for you, knowing that you've been in your position since 2014 how would you describe the change uh, that Julie has just referred to? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think um, I think things are really moving, and I think part of that is th- uh, there's a, there are a lot more people uh, coming out younger. Um, I think like a lot of changes happening in the youth space, especially. You know, young people are so good at holding us to higher standards. You know, um, like I get really excited by how young people, a lot of young people, really expect to be treated better. They're not saying, oh, well, we got this little bit, so you know, we'll, we'll make do with that. They're saying, no, not good enough. And they even say it to us. They say it to the people who are advocating for them and we're trying to take their, you know, the things that they that they need and um, make those things a reality. And I find that even when we're talking with groups of young people and they're asking us questions like, you know, what are the different pronouns that you can use if you don't want to use he or she? And we say, yep, that's a great idea. Does anyone have any Does anyone have any answers for that? And they have more answers than we do. Like it's it's amazing. It's like the the push for change is you know coming a lot from rangatahi. I think that they have a real sense of fairness and justice, and so they might not say that it's a human rights approach, but it is. Um, and they're coming at it from you know we deserve better, which is like a great a great place to be coming from. 
and sometimes the parents have to catch up yeah, <laughs> with right. that. So what are some of the examples of the words, the examples that they've given you instead of he and she? Yeah, I think, I mean, most commonly, a lot of like takatapui and irafati, like Māori, rainbow people use ear and they, them is probably the most com- well, it is the most common like non-binary pronoun. There are all kinds of other words that people are using. I think it's quite difficult for a lot of people to get into the habit of using words that they haven't heard before. So I think they, them is the most common because it's, it is used, you know, in everyday English language when you don't know whose phone that is, you know, someone left their phone here. <laughs> they must have left without it. It's, it's easier for people to pick up. And uh, like you say, there's ear in Māori, which never defines if the person, you know, what the gender of the person is. So that's an easy go-to in Māori. Julia, where do you think change is made? And for people to understand, say, in an English sentence, they being singular is an adjustment. So how is that adjustment made? How is change made? Um, It absolutely is an adjustment. Um, As Ahi mentioned, people are actually using singular they in this way um, all the time, even if they think they aren't, for a gender-neutral context, when you don't know the person's gender. And so this is really just a shift to using it for a new purpose. But for some reason, um, that does attract a lot of resistance among people who will often lean on the idea that it's grammatically incorrect. You're referring to someone as plural, which is true, you're using a plural verb. You would say they have... Uh, you know, they have a problem with this or they have or have a new iPad or whatever. And you, it, it does jar the ears a little, perhaps, to hear that plural verb used with uh, a singular they. So it is an adjustment, but the fact that we are already doing it quite a lot without knowing, I think, should help there. I've had it um, with a member of my family when I first started using they, singular they, extensively. And for me, it really felt a lot like learning a language. It was something where at the beginning it's quite hard and feels unnatural. And then after, in my case, it was a period of months suddenly something just clicking, like when I realised I could finally speak French without having a panic attack or whatever, you know, (laughs) those of us who've learnt languages, something will just suddenly become natural through use. So you do have to, you know, be trying to use it, have the opportunity to use it for it to feel natural, but at some point it will. And I think that's what's really important here is to think about how um, singular they has actually been used since way, way, way back, centuries and centuries ago. And even Shakespeare and Emily Dickens and various people whose who's writing and language use we, you know, culturally we respect, we're using it in, in this, this other form that was used for first. So it has a long history. It's not actually anything new. It's just something that we need to become used to in our own individual language practices. And the only way to do it is to throw yourself in there and try. What about when you need to self-correct? Is it self-correction? And also, I guess, taking on board corrections from other people. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a kind of uh, saying that that comes up all the time is self-correct and move on is kind of the the official advice, if you will, (laughs) within this area. I think most people I know who are gender diverse would would sign up for that. The idea that if you make a mistake, then rather than making a really big deal about it, just correcting yourself and trying again next time is the best way to go about it. Because if you make a a really big deal about apologising and explaining what you did wrong, and I'm so sorry, and, and all of that, then the person you're talking to gets put in a position of having to reassure you that it's okay, it's fine, it's fine, you got my pronoun wrong again. It's exhausting and puts a lot of pressure on the person, uh, you know, to reassure you that you're doing an okay job when actually you were the one that, you know, 
that made the mistake. So quick corrections on the fly seems to be what I've heard is the most useful. Um, but there may be different opinions on that, obviously. Tahi, you were talking about how young people are uh, seeming to be able to come out more easily. And then I noticed, like, say, on social media, people might put their preferred pronouns on there to say this is how I like to be addressed. How else can people and do people express how they'd like to be referred to? There's a kind of uh, interesting thing happening at the moment, which is a lot of people putting... I guess introducing themselves with their pronouns. We at Gender Minorities, we don't tend to do that because it's um, it, it kind of puts people on the spot a bit sometimes. Some people really like it. I've met young people who have come up to me and said, you know, hi, this is my name and this is my sexuality and my gender. And I think, oh, gosh. Um, okay. Like, that's, you know. The, um, okay. Uh, I would usually say where I'm from, but that's but that's me. Yeah, but I think that on online it's simple because people can write it into their email signatures or they can put it onto their social media or that sort of thing and I think that probably that the um, the rise of using the internet or um, or you know in particular social media has probably had a major influence on how much people are connecting with other trans people um, I can really only speak to trans stuff but I imagine it's the same across the rainbow like people are connecting more easily with others yeah and so a lot of that um, a lot of the discussions about it are happening online I think in person it's conversations, you know, it's the it's the old fashioned it's the old fashioned corridor face to face. And I suppose that's where quite often it's a it's a big discussion about lots of factors around it and then language is just a you know, a little part of how that goes. Julia, what difference does that make when say if I say on my profile that my pronouns are ear or she, what does that do environmentally to language and our expectation and our understanding of inclusivity in language? Well, I think that um, doing things like putting your pronouns in your email signature on Zoom and so on, it is fundamentally, it's highly symbolic. That doesn't mean that it's not important. It's a little bit like um, the increasing use of te reo Māori on, on the radio. Um, you know, even if people aren't telling the whole news report in, in Māori um, on Radio New Zealand, the fact that they introduce their reports using words from te reo has a really strong impact and people respond to that, you know, positively or negatively as we know. And so it's, it's an attitude signal fundamentally. So people who may be cisgender and not be using a pronoun to reflect a trans identity, if they declare their pronouns in this way, I think what it conveys, and it, people will again have different reactions to it, but is a sense that this person is a safe person for me to share my personal ident- gender identity with, and I can expect that to be respected. So it's very symbolic in that regard for people who are cisgender, for people who are, are trans uh, or gender diverse, then obviously it's about conveying something important about who they are. And I think it, it sends other signals too, the fact that you might think, oh, it's not necessary because I look a certain way, people will know uh, what gender I am. But it breaks down this idea that just by looking at someone, you can know how they identify in terms of gender. So there's a lot of ideas behind it. And that's so much the case with inclusivity in language. In the end, you know, words are just words. It's a bunch of letters and vowels and consonants. um, And what's really important is the connotations around them. So these symbolic moves, I think, are in fact hugely impactful. So like you say, Tauhi, it's about whether you're enhancing the mana and recognising the mana of that person and what they want. Uh, a young rangatahi in my whānau actually said, well, gender reveals 
shouldn't really happen while the baby's still in the womb because maybe I'll reveal my gender later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's a common sentiment because you can't imagine that you know, uh, you know, who, who someone's going to be. We know that at least one percent of the population identify as transgender. So there's, you know, at least fifty thousand people um, in Aotearoa who are trans. Whether or not they're out um, is another story. But we've got pretty clear, consistent research showing that it's at least one percent. So. So I guess that when people do decide what gender they think a person is going to be, they're wrong at least 1% of the time. Um, <laughs> and, and that's not even <laughs> taking into account intersex people, who are also research shows about 1.7%. And of course, most of them don't identify as trans and many of them don't use a different pronoun or just, you know, they, they, they are the gender that they were assigned at birth. But it used to be very hidden and people didn't talk about it and it's only you know, in the last 30 years that it started to kind of come, to, started to be something that people know about. And so, you know, 1.7% is as common as red hair. It's, uh, it puts into perspective just how many people might be in Aotearoa now who have different gender or sex characteristics or stuff happening around that area that, we, um, that we've made wrong assumptions about when people were born. Some of these things I've learnt about online, to be honest. Uh, social media helped me with cis, it helped me, you know. So so could you give us some definitions of um, when we say intersex, when we say cis, when we say gender fluid, what do those things mean for a person? Yeah, I guess in a nutshell, trans people are people who who had a gender assigned to them when they were born and they don't agree with that. So they grow, they grow up or sometimes when they're still young um, to say, actually, that's not my gender. Um, and actually, interestingly, on that point, the Youth 19 study showed that a really high number of young people who identify as trans knew that they were trans before they were 14. So we know that, you know, actually a lot of people know that when they're quite young. Not everyone, but a lot of people. And cisgender just is the opposite of that. So it just means that you're assigned a gender at birth and you agree with that. That is your gender. Intersex people are people who were born with a natural variation of their sex characteristics. So that could be chromosomes or um, different elements of reproductive and um, sexual anatomy. There's a lot of different elements that can, you know, that can make up those sex characteristics. Mm. Did we leave any out? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's everyone. There are so many. <laughs> <laughs> so if we say gender fluid, I know I've heard people and I must admit, I've got some, you know, people in my mind, like you were talking about in your family, that struggle with this. So if, if gender fluidity, if we talk about that, Julia, how do we describe to people who struggle with that idea what it means? Yeah, and I think there are so many identity terms and it's quite understandable that people get confused. I think people within the community get confused as well. They're growing. Uh, I saw a, that there was a study a few years ago in the United States, a survey of young people where a hundred different terms came up in terms of how they identified on the rainbow. So it's, yeah, there is a proliferation of terms and I don't think we need, you know, those of us who aren't part of those communities don't necessarily need to know what they all mean. It's about showing respect and, and interest in, in the person and how they choose to identify and that that's affirming for them. When it comes to gender fluidity or, and 
gender diversity as being the broad umbrella overall. Really, it's about referring to everybody who exists in between these binary categories of he or she. And so when often when people talk to me if they're gender fluid, they talk about how their sense of who they are gender-wise will change over time. So they may feel more female at some point and sometimes they may feel more male and sometimes more in the middle. And this, you know, may be hard for people to understand who haven't grown up being taught that this is a possibility. But in fact, you know, this is a phenomenon that is not new at all. It has existed across cultures and we have heaps of examples from other um, other cultures, including um, within Aotearoa, within, within Te Ao Māori, of gender fluidity having been an accepted part of cultural and identity practices uh, pre-colonisation. And so this seems unfamiliar perhaps to people who've been educated in a you know dominant Pakya cultural system, but it's absolutely a part of, of regular human diversity. So the terms just describe different points along that continuum between male and female. And it's nothing you know radical or new. I think it's just the fact that we're at a point where it's rising to dominant public consciousness that this exists. I think it's absolutely uncontroversial that transgender and gender diverse people have have identified this way for a long time. They just may not have had the words to express it in the way that we are now. And also the way that we use words change. Obviously that's what you, you understand a lot. But in terms of te reo Māori, uh, takapui, takatapui, uh, these ideas of having friends uh, of the same sex who are more than, you know, who are also sexual partners, those kind of things, like you say, have been part of our culture, mairano, uh, for a long time. And I find sometimes te reo Māori makes things easier. My son said to me, who must have been about 11, and he made a new friend at a camp, and he said, ehara so um, they're not a girl and they're not a boy, they're a ia. And in Te Reo Māori, there's kāreheraru, there's no issue at all. Te ahi, he pehe what do you think about uh, where mātauranga Māori and Te Reo Māori can play a role in us using inclusive language? Mm. A way that I like to think about this is that in some of our creation stories, you know, there are cases where there were atua who are talked about as being males and then they also gave birth and those sorts of things. And I think that, and those are important stories. The fact that those are our creation stories shows that that's what our ancestors were seeing, that the sense of this history of being transgender, all of the different ways gender can happen, you know, that's it's not new. It's been around for such a long time and it's had an important place in our culture. Part of how that can influence things now is like people having that sense of belonging, Māori rainbow people having that sense of belonging. And that's not just in the past, that's still now. So like it's looking at that and knowing that that's not something that our ancestors believed once upon a time and doesn't exist anymore. Um, That's still what we believe, that still exists. I think that it's that signaling thing, evolving our language, isn't just about the language, it's about pointing to the wider issues. And I was thinking earlier when you were speaking, Julia, about using Te Reo Māori and on the radio or in, um, on, on the road signs, you know, on the, the place names and things, thinking about that relationship between tokenism and, like, um, starting a conversation, because it's really like if, if things are... Things can just be token, but also sometimes um, things that are starting 
you know, like they have to start somewhere. That gets people thinking about it. So it starts the development of that deeper understanding. Yeah, it creates that sort of fertility mm. in the soil, the whenua haumako, and that people can actually talk about it and engage with it and know that it's part of who we are. Like you say, there are references, ancient references, that tell us that this is not new, it is not alien, it was actually not an issue mm. in our culture. Julia, is that what you mean when you talk about decolonizing language? Yeah, I think that this this can be really important for people who are Māori to recognise that gender diversity has such a long history in Te Ao Māori. But it can also be really important for people who are non-Māori to look at the systems that we have and realise, hey, this is not the only way that it has to be. Because so often um, Pākehā culture in New Zealand is seen as, well, you know, that's just that's just how it works. And so when we can see um, evidence and, and through the, the kōrero of, of Māori people and young gender diverse people, People, you know that this is. There are other ways to look at this that also have a really long and coherent and important history. Then that's that's a real challenge to hegemonic um, Pākehā systems, which are right through New Zealand, and that particularly in this area because colonisation was a very gendered project. You know, this is the reason why gender diversity was in the end suppressed among Māori people, and that there's been a need to kind of reclaim this history and reclaim the identity term Takatapui is because when New Zealand was colonised, these ideas about the gender binary and, um, you know, patriarchal norms were imposed on on Māori in New Zealand. And so uh, when we question that, then it's part of this broader project of of decolonising our systems in general. And I think some people panic at that thought, and I personally think it's it's a good thing. You know, it's it's liberating on the individual level because it's it's both Māori and non-Māori who are oppressed by these systems. I know I sound a bit like a Marxist there now, but I do feel very strongly about it. We see it in our in our lives. You know, those of us who who are or who are close to people who are gender diverse, the um, the oppression is real. Yeah, and and it's very simple things. It's everyday interactions. Um, I had a COVID test yesterday, by the way, negative. But just I was asked Miss or Mrs. and I thought, what an assumption. And and they're a kind, nice person. But those are still the things that we ask people to define themselves by. Are those examples sort of the the sort of things you're talking about, Julia? Yeah, absolutely. And um, something I really like about the new statistical standard for collecting data on gender identity and um, diverse sex characteristics and sexuality that Statistics New Zealand has just released is the first question is, do you need to collect gender data? Um, Because so often, and I felt I had this even more so in Europe than in New Zealand, but you know, you're filling out a form for who knows what. I think my mother was buying a a bookseller's token the other day for a gift and she had to to put down what gender she was when she bought it. And it was only male or female but anyway who cares you know you're buying a book token they don't need to know what gender you are and so um it's so they can advertise to you more that's why <laughs> yeah yeah so that will bring in capitalism as well you know it's all connected yeah it is a problem and i and what i think is really great though is that we have the ability as individuals to to fight back at the truth the, the very words that we choose as individuals and, and that's the case in a lot of areas but certainly i was thinking when ahi when you were talking about the number of people who are intersex or who are trans in new zealand um how that group who is really affected by these kind of um language choices gets 
big very quickly when you also think about all the family members of those people and all their friends and all the people who identify as queer in other ways and so on. The minority group is not actually that small, you know, it gets bigger and bigger. And within that, we have the power when, when one person starts to use their language differently, say to adopt a new pronoun, and other people start to respect that, the, the ripple effect is so immediate. And I've seen it in my family where I've watched a family member switch to they and then how the rest of us adjusted around that and then how at school the entire school of you know 400 kids can do it because it is maybe easier for kids to adjust more quickly then you've got that is a a huge impact just from a switch in one word that people are using yes so it's that's the bit where I feel optimistic is that uh, a word is just a word, but a word can actually, you know, literally change a family, a school, a community, and then, you know, in the end, hopefully the whole country, maybe the world. Yeah, I've experienced (laughs) that too. And that it changes the kids around them because when one decided, well, you know, let people know that their pronouns were to be different, it was not a shock to the kids and they actually all became protectors and wanted to help that person feel okay and actually stood up for them a lot. And that showed me that the courage and and I guess the determination of that person to be their true selves was really enhanced by the people around them and, and so it changed the, the, the tamariki as well. And it's great when that happens. It's, it's a really beautiful thing to see, but we also have to recognise that that many young people are not that fortunate. Yeah. Um, and we have huge issues in terms of homophobic, transphobic um, bullying in New Zealand schools. And this is, you know, one of the... One of the big issues we really need to work on and inside out where I'm on a, the board is, is very focused on this too around um, trying to create safer schools for our rainbow young people because if you can create that supportive bubble around them in the school, it's it's hugely impactful in terms of people's mental health and we're not there in New Zealand yet. There are some parts of the country that where it's, you know, you might have more options in terms of supportive schools but there's a lot where there's still work to be done and there's a lot of demand for information and advice and training so I think we're very much on the right track there but we have to remember that all young people should have a right to have that level of respect and support from their communities and it's it's not the case right now. Kapai and Tauhi the things that you'd like us to focus on? I think something really interesting that's come up in recent research is that Māori trans people are more likely to have supportive whānau. Um, they're more likely to ask whānau for support if they've experienced sexual violence. They're more likely to get that support. So I think that there are lots of there are lots of things that are happening within our culture, within Māori culture, that are protecting and supporting young people differently than, you know, not in our culture. So I think that there's lots of answers to be found about how to support and how to be a good whānau, you know, within te ao Māori. There are so many different things that need to be done to support young people and people of all ages effectively. So I think there's, yeah, I think we have some good pointers on where to go with that. So ka wa kōrua kōrero. So to summarise what we've talked about today, there's great things being done. We've looked at why we do this, that it's not a new thing, that we're actually just respecting and enhancing the mana of people who are asking to be addressed in a way that feels right for them. And that we have still some work to do, particularly to make sure that these kind of things don't impact negatively on people who have 
just as much right to live and be who they are. Ahoy anō. Hey, whakakapi uh, wene kōrero. Anything else you guys would like to add? Yeah, I guess I would just say um, that there are also, there are organisations like Gender Minorities Aotearoa and like Inside Out who do a lot of good work in this area and we have a lot of resources that are really useful for whānau and for schools and for, you know, pe- people in the community. So if people want to find out more and, um, you know, and go on that journey, then, yeah, look us up. And as always, thank you for listening and thank you for taking it on board. And that's actually all that people ask, isn't it? No reira, tēnei ka mehi, kia kōrua tahi, e mehi ana, e mehi ana. You've been listening to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, brought to you by Massey University and The Spin-Off. Hosted by me, Stacey Morrison. Produced by Jane Yee and Matthew McCauley, with music by Grayson Gilmore. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.